Could I ask you to please turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy, uh, Paul's letter to Timothy, and uh, we're going to be reading the first 11 verses this morning as we commence uh, a new series today. So please turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1, uh, verse 1 to 11. It will come up on the screen, uh, but it's good uh, that you follow along in your own Bibles and, uh, and read this passage in the week as well uh, as you think back on uh, the message and as you consider what's coming in the weeks to come. 1 Timothy chapter 1, reading from verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, with which I have been entrusted. Well, just so far in God's word, and we have prayed that he would be pleased to help us and to add his blessing to it. And so it's, it's very good to be able to start a new series with you this morning in the book of 1 Timothy. Uh, 1 and 2 Timothy, along with Paul's letter to Titus, have become known uh, over the years as the pastoral epistles or the pastoral letters because they are written by the Apostle Paul to two pastors of local churches with the primary instruction to hold on to the gospel as of first importance in the teaching and the practice of the local church. And although uh, 1 and 2 Timothy are personal letters from Paul to Timothy, unlike the, the letter to the Romans or the letter to the Galatians or the letter to the Ephesians. These are personal letters to Timothy. They are nevertheless semi-public letters because it's very clear from the content of the letters, as we will see, and particularly if you want to turn to the very last closing verse of the, of the letter, verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 21, you will see that Paul ends off this letter to Timothy with the words, grace be with you. And we can't see it in English because we don't have a singular you and a plural you, but in the Greek, the you is plural. And so Paul's closing greeting is intended uh, for the benefit of the whole church. Now, there is a, a real urgency in Paul's writing to Timothy, uh, which doesn't leave a lot of room for 
for pleasantries. Paul's got a lot of important things that he wants to say to Timothy, things that he wants to say through Timothy to the church in Ephesus, uh, and so by implication, things that God, through Paul, through this letter to, the, uh, to, to Timothy, uh, is meant for us as well. And so let me just give you a little bit of historical background to this letter, and then we're going to just jump straight into the first section this morning. Now, we know that these pastoral letters of Paul were written towards the very end of Paul's life, probably uh, around uh, the, the early to mid-60s uh, A.D., it seems that uh, after Paul had been released from prison in Rome uh, and just prior to his final execution under Nero, that Paul um, wrote these letters. If we go back to the book of Acts, you will see that the book of Acts ends with Paul under house arrest in Rome for a period of two years. And then the book ends, the book of Acts ends. Uh, but Paul's life doesn't end at the end of the book of Acts, and so it appears that Paul was released from house arrest in Rome, and then from reconstructions that we can make from these three pastoral epistles, after being released from Rome, um, Paul embarks on a fourth missionary journey hoping to then visit some of the churches that he had planted, churches that he had established, uh, and to execute his desire to go to Spain, which he had made clear uh, along the way, to take the gospel there as well. Now, although the details of this fourth missionary journey are not clear, it seems that during this time, Paul writes to two young pastors, to Timothy and to Titus. These are men who had been entrusted uh, with the pastoral ministry in Ephesus, Timothy in Ephesus, and Titus in Crete. And he writes to these pastors to encourage them to contend for the gospel which had been handed down to them. Both Timothy and Titus had been protégés of Paul. They had accompanied him, as you read the book of Acts, on his earlier three missionary journeys. They had learned firsthand from Paul the, the struggles and the hardships of being a missionary, of church planting, the weight of pastoral care of the churches of Jesus Christ. And Paul was just one person. He was unable to personally pastor multiple churches scattered across Asia Minor. And so he appoints these two young men to then oversee the congregations uh, where he had ministered and where they had been involved with him in his uh, church planting efforts. And so for now, we're going to focus our attention on Timothy. Timothy was a, a man who was born to a Jewish mother and a Gentile father. Uh, we first encountered Timothy in Acts chapter 16, and we are told that his Jewish mother was a believer, and Timothy had also become a believer, a disciple of Jesus Christ. And as you read the book of Acts, you find that Paul was impressed with this young man, probably a teenager in his late teens at the time that Paul met him. And so Paul was so impressed with this young man on fire for the Lord that he took him along on his missionary journeys where Timothy learned from Paul all the teachings of Jesus Christ and the gospel. And he would have witnessed in action the, the heart uh, of this pioneer missionary and church planter uh, and pastor. Now one of the cities, key cities in the book of Acts, uh, is the city of Ephesus. 
where Paul spent three whole years establishing the church there. And it seems from the book of Acts that Timothy was Paul's helper during that entire time uh, in Ephesus before they then continued on their missionary endeavors. Now, a key insight to find or to understand why Timothy is now back in Ephesus some years later, uh, we need to turn to Acts chapter 20. I'll bring it up on the screen. Um, to a prophecy that Paul made as he bid farewell to the elders in the church in Ephesus. And it's Acts chapter 20, verse 29. Paul, in his final greeting to the elders in Ephesus, said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, so from within the church in Ephesus, men will arise speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Now, we're not sure of the exact timing, but we probably find ourselves now at the beginning of 1 Timothy, about 10 years down the road from this prediction made by Paul back in Acts chapter 20. And true to his words spoken by the Holy Spirit, the church in Ephesus was facing this exact crisis that Paul described or predicted. False teachers had come in to deceive the church of Jesus Christ. And so Paul now sends Timothy, his trusted helper, who'd been a great helper, great encouragement to Paul. He sends him back to the church in Ephesus to bring biblical correction to the church, to put back in place certain things which had been ignored or forgotten, uh, both regarding their faith, what they believed, as well as their practice, uh, how they were functioning and, and living as Christians and as a church. And so we have a, a young godly pastor being sent by his mentor into the melting pot of a city called Ephesus, a prominent city. This was the city which hosted the great temple uh, of Artemis. Uh, it was a city filled with pagan philosophies. It was a city filled with ungodly practices, a city filled with all the trappings of success. And it was a city in which the church of Jesus Christ had been infiltrated by false teachers. In other words, it, it was a city just like Johannesburg in 2023. Pagan philosophies, ungodly practices, the trappings of success, and yet a, church, a, a city in which the church, by and large, has been infiltrated by false teaching. What a massive task to assign to the young Timothy to go back to the church where where he had previously been in his late teens or perhaps early 20s, and now he's perhaps in his late 20s, early 30s, to go and return to this church as a young man and to oppose false teachers and to instruct the people of God as to what it was to be a biblical church. Timothy was a godly man. He knew the scriptures well. He had been taught well. He had been raised well. Paul had explained the gospel to him, but he was still young. He was still timid. Uh, he needed help. He needed encouragement in this massive task that had been assigned to him. And so Paul writes this letter to Timothy, not only to encourage Timothy and instruct Timothy, it, it was that, but to, con uh, to, to, to correct and to instruct 
the church through Timothy. So that's really why I think some people have missed the point when they say, well, Timothy, Timothy, and Titus are only for pastors. No, not at all. Uh, yes, it's for pastors, but these letters were written for the benefit of the church. And the issues that Paul wants Timothy to address in Ephesus are, are relevant, remain extremely relevant uh, to us as the Honey Ridge Baptist Church. Some of the things we're going to see in the, in the next a couple of weeks and months ahead that Paul writes to address in Ephesus. False teaching in the church. The responsibility of corporate prayer in the church. The roles of men and women in the church. The qualifications for and the roles of both elders and deacons in the church. The process of sanctification of believers, how the, the church matures in holiness the danger of apostasy and falling away from God, the work of faithful pastors and elders, the practical caring ministries of the church. How do we practically look after the poor and the widow and the orphan in the context of the church? Understanding Christian contentment and generosity and all of this under a broad banner of fighting the good fight of the faith. And so, the title that we've chosen to give to this new series is Contending for the Gospel. In all its varied dimensions of both doctrine and practice as the church here at Honey Ridge. Now Paul's got a lot to say to Timothy, uh, all of which is important to us, but his most pressing issue, which really sets the tone for the whole letter to Timothy, is that of confronting and rooting out false teaching. False teaching, we will see, leads to wrong beliefs, and wrong beliefs leads to wrong practice. And so Paul's great concern is a reaffirmation of the one true gospel of Jesus Christ, what that looks like and what it looks to, to live that out in the life of the church. And so our title for this morning's sermon is Building on a Solid Foundation. If the truth of the gospel is not faithfully preached and the word of God is not rightly being handled and taught from this pulpit, in our small group Bible studies, in our youth meetings, in our Sunday schools, then it doesn't matter what else the church gets right. It won't be long before the cracks will begin to appear and the church will begin to collapse. So let's see what Paul has to say to Timothy to the church in Ephesus, and then seek to apply that to ourselves as Honey Ridge this morning. In the first place, I want us to see the authority of God's messengers in verse 1 and 2. Now, we may just be tempted to skip over verse 1 and 2 as the kind of usual greeting of a letter, but I think that would be a big mistake. All Scripture is God-breathed. Every word, every sentence matters. And yes, Paul does follow the normal convention here of letter writing. He states who the letter is from. Uh, who he's writing to, and he gives a brief word of greeting. But in each of these uh, categories, he's making a point. He's making a point about what the real issue is that is going on in the church and what is going to become the content of his letter, namely that of false teaching and drifting away from the truth of God's word. And so we see this because Paul is wanting right up front in his greeting to establish both his own authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ, as well as Timothy's authority as the assigned pastor of that congregation, 
as well as to start addressing the heart of the issue of false teaching. Now Paul reminds Timothy. Timothy doesn't need reminding, which again is one of the clear hints that this letter was meant to be read in the context of the church. He reminds Timothy, he reminds the church that he is writing to them as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. The strong assertion of his authority in this introduction is also seen in two of Paul's other letters, uh, namely that of Galatians and 1 Corinthians, where in both of those churches, Paul's authority was being undermined. And so here in Ephesus, Paul is expecting that Timothy will receive opposition from those in the church, those leaders, those false teachers to his ministry. And so he reminds Timothy and he reminds the church that Paul is the one who is an apostle of both Jesus Christ by the specific command of God and of Jesus Christ himself. In other words, if Paul's instructions to the church are going to be opposed or resisted, then he has made it clear that any opposition is ultimately against Paul. God himself and against Jesus Christ who appointed Paul to be the apostle to the Gentiles under whose ministry this church had been established. But then Paul goes on to make it clear that Timothy, whom he has now sent to Ephesus, that he too carries by his apostolic appointment the same authority of Paul because he says that Timothy is his true child in the faith. It's to Timothy, verse 2, my true child in the faith. In other words, Timothy was the representative of Paul to the church in Ephesus. He was a genuine child of God, and he was Paul's spiritual child in the faith, making it clear that Timothy's position as the messenger to the church at Ephesus carried with it the endorsement and, and the authority of Paul himself, which then in turn meant it carried with him the authority and the instruction of God. Paul then just hints at the issue of the false teaching that he's going to address uh, in his greeting. He says in verse two, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that seems innocent enough. But when we compare this greeting of Paul in this letter to all the other letters to the churches in the New Testament, 11 times in all of his other greetings, he says, grace and peace to you, which was the, the normal greeting. But in this letter to Timothy in Ephesus, his greeting contains grace, peace, and mercy. Now, the significance of that is that the word for mercy used by Paul the Greek word is the Hebrew word that we've often spoken about, the Hebrew word chesed. It's that word that's used exclusively of God's steadfast covenant love for his people Israel. And here Paul includes this word of God's covenant faithfulness and love to his people in his greeting to Timothy and the church in Ephesus. And the reason for this will become evident later when we will see that those leaders who were introducing false teaching into the church at Ephesus, they were Jewish converts 
who were now trying to get these Gentile believers in the church to somehow incorporate and go back to the Old Testament Jewish laws and practices in the life and worship of the church. And the implication was that unless the Gentile Christians embraced the Jewish laws and practices and traditions and festivals, well, they would not fully experience the love of God. They wouldn't reach a, a higher level of spirituality. Now Solomon reminds us that there is nothing new under the sun. And this exact same danger is rife across Christianity in our world today and has even taken hold of some in this church. It's called the Hebrew Roots Movement. And, and I want to call it out this morning because it is dangerous. It teaches Christians to go back to the traditions and the festivals and the laws of Judaism, insisting that we must use the Hebrew names for God and Jesus. And in doing so, we will discover true spirituality. And we will only then really become the true people of God. So Paul adds in his greeting to Timothy that those who are in Christ Jesus, sorry, I've just lost my place here, those who are in Christ Jesus, that they receive God's mercy. They have his saving grace. The believers knew that. They have his reconciling peace. They knew that too. But the false teachers were saying that in order to experience God's chesed, in order to experience God's mercy, the way the Old Testament people of Israel did, you needed to go back. And he says, no, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. It's yours. It's yours if you are in Christ. So with the authority of Paul uh, and Timothy established and just hinting at where he's going, Paul now moves on immediately to confront the issue of false teaching in the church. And so in the second place, I want us to see the charge against the false messengers in verse three to seven. Now usually in Paul's letters, he would follow his greeting with, with some kind of expression of, of thankfulness to God for the people he was writing to. But this is not the case here. The, the deadly serious nature of false teaching which has come to Paul's attention means that he's not distracted by, by pleasantries, but he must tackle the issue head on. And so he says to Timothy in verse three, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promotes speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions." So, so here we see the danger and the deception of false teaching and how it should be addressed in the context of the local church. Paul speaks very strongly when he says to Timothy, I urged you to charge certain people not to preach any different doctrine. 
Now, the word he uses for charge could be translated to order or to command. I urge you to command those people to stop their teaching. In other words, we are not to deal gently or pragmatically with false teaching, says Paul. We are to confront it head on and to order those involved in that to stop. Now, where this gets particularly relevant uh, to us in the 21st century is that Paul's instruction to Timothy doesn't seem to be focused on something that we would call a gospel issue. In other words, an essential doctrine of the faith. Unlike his letter to the Galatians, where the teaching of the Judaizers was similarly but, but went even further, leading the people to what Paul called another gospel, which is no gospel at all, here Paul seems to be dealing with with something that is a more subtle form of false teaching, which initially seems quite harmless. And yet we see that he urges Timothy to command these people to stop teaching a different doctrine. In other words, teaching which differs from that which Paul had handed down to this congregation from the beginning. Now, maybe it's a good thing that we aren't told exactly what this different doctrine was because that might limit us to its application in our world today. But for Paul, because it was different, because it was different to what he had passed down to them as an apostle of Jesus, it was not to be entertained. And this remains a key strategy of the evil one today, to get Christians to, to reframe, uh, to, to reinterpret the gospel not usually the big issues of the deity of Christ or the substitutionary atonement of Jesus on the cross or salvation by faith alone. No, we, we know how to defend those. The church is quite good at seeing those errors, but in more subtle ways to get Christians to say, hmm, that is a fascinating idea. I've never thought about God like that. You know what? I've never thought about gender as something that's not binary, but on a spectrum. Wow, that's amazing. I never thought that when God said he created the earth, he didn't actually mean that. He, he probably meant that he kind of initiated stuff and gave years. It's amazing, wow. I didn't ever think about heaven or hell not really being real, but just something that helps us get through life. That's, that's fascinating. I think I like this new teaching. You know what? It resonates with me. No, says Paul. No. It's a different doctrine. Now, one example of this, and it's a little bit outdated, but I think it's still fairly relevant, is the release of a book and a movie called The Shack. And when the book came out about 10 or 15 years ago, it took the Christian world by storm. It became a worldwide bestseller. Uh, I think today it's sold in the region of around 30 million copies. It's been translated as well into over 30 languages. And the real danger was that it introduced Christians not directly to heresy, but very subtly by weaving a whole host of devastating theological heresies into a very gripping storyline of a novel. The book was then made into a Hollywood movie and the influence and its reach uh, continues to spread even wider to those who don't read. 
who are being led astray by false teaching that puts forward a, a quite unique perspective on God. It seems, in, initially at least, interesting. It, it, it seems perhaps harmless. Some Christians even consider it to be helpful, and yet at its core, it's false. It's false. And so Paul urges Timothy to command those in the church to stop teaching a different doctrine, which he goes on to say involves them being caught up in myths, and in their case, it was endless genealogies, which Paul says result in what? Truth. No. Speculation. Ponderings. Rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. So why have books like the Da Vinci Code and, and the Shack and so many others on, on visits to heaven or the Shroud of Turin or end time prophecies being fulfilled today, why are they so popular and devoured by the Christian public? Well, because everyone loves a good conspiracy theory. We love stories with, with hidden secrets, things about which speculation abounds. And while some of these things might be uh, entertaining and appear rather harmless, Paul commands that these things should not be taught and hence should not be read or watched at, or listened to without very careful discernment because it's diverting us from the stewardship from God which is by faith. As we will see at some point in Paul's second letter to Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for instruction and correcting and training in righteousness. Everything we have in God's word is all that we need, all that God wants us to know about himself, all that he expects of us as Christians to be good stewards of the gospel. And so Paul here warns them, we are to know these words, we are to study them, we are to guard against anything which deviates from the truth. Al Mohler, president of Southern Baptist Seminary in the States, said in an article entitled The Shack, uh, the missing art of evangelical discernment, but it applies to everything else that's, that's in fashion today. He says, the tragedy that evangelicals have lost the art of biblical discernment must be traced to a disastrous loss of biblical knowledge. Discernment cannot survive without doctrine. So there are certainly still many false teachers in the church today, more so today than they even were back in the New Testament times. But very often, most often, you will not find the false teachers in the pulpits of conservative, evangelical, or Baptist churches like ours. That would not be tolerated, I hope. We guard the pulpit at all costs. We'd never allow one of those false teachers to come and preach here at Honeyridge. And yet it's strange how willing and open we are to invite these false teachers into our homes through the television shows that we watch, the YouTube channels, the books we read, the music we listen to, what we allow our children to be exposed to. And suddenly, in the privacy of our own thoughts, we open ourselves up to their myths, to their speculations, and we don't realize that we are drifting into different doctrines dangerous doctrines which do not square up against the word of God because if we're honest, we don't know the word of God. 
The issue, it seems, from verse 7 is that these false teachers in Ephesus were self-proclaimed teachers of the law. And what characterized them was, in actual fact, that they were ignorant in understanding, ignorant of the deception that they were propagating, which means they probably came across as well-meaning individuals. And they did so with such confidence and conviction. I guarantee you, if these guys that Paul's speaking about in 1 Timothy, if they lived in our day, they would have all had the most professional YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok channels. Whereas self-proclaimed, perhaps Hebrew scholars, they would have spewed out their subtle heresies to millions of unsuspecting Christians who keep forwarding their videos to their friends on WhatsApp as truth. Because we all know if you receive it via WhatsApp, it must be true. (laughs) Paul says that these false teachers have swerved away from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. They didn't turn their backs on the Bible and abandon its truth overnight. They slowly deviated from truth. They slowly drifted from a pure heart. They slowly had their consciences tainted by impure motives, and eventually they corrupted their faith. And you can be sure that all those who listened to their teaching would soon follow the same path. Now, if I was preaching this message even 10 years ago, I would have specifically directed my application comments at this point to young people. And I still do, young people, please listen up. But what I'm about to say, I think today is even a bigger problem to some degree by the older generation these days. Ever since COVID, older folk have become social media magnets. You know what I'm speaking about. Do not think that you can read books, watch movies, listen to these so-called Bible teachers on YouTube and DSTV all day, young people perhaps listening to the worship music of Bethel and Elevation Church, and not be affected by their theology, or lack thereof, should I say. The devil is committed to deceiving you, and one of the easiest ways to deceive you today is most likely not through false teaching and preaching coming from the church. But it's through the incredible numbers of preachers and teachers and authors and bloggers and vloggers and musicians and movies, all claiming to be Christian and yet which teach a different doctrine. It's one of the real worries I have as a pastor is that perhaps once a week you're getting truth on a Sunday at church, you're getting perhaps truth once a week at your Bible study small group. But if 50 or 60 or 70 times a week you are getting false doctrine being fed through all these other preachers in your life, what hope have we got of discerning truth from error? So the the warning to avoid false teachers is the first step, but it's not simply enough to warn against what is wrong. Uh, We must also teach and promote that which is true And so Paul moves on in the third place uh, with the correction of the false message in verse 8 to 10. And we can only make a a partial guess here at the false teaching which was being promoted. Um, But Paul seeks to correct one of the errors of the false teaching. It seems from these verses and then also later from 1 Timothy 4 that they were teaching the Christians in Ephesus to submit to the Old Testament Jewish food laws. 
and they were also promoting a kind of legalism which forbid marriage. And so Paul confronts these teachers who he's already said don't understand the law of God nor what it was intended for and he lays down clearly the place and the purpose of the law. Verse eight, now we know that the law is good. This is particularly speaking of the Old Testament law. If one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless, the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy, profane, those who strike their fathers and mothers, murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Paul here confronts the tendency of Christians who after we've been saved by grace, we then return back to the observance of the law as a means to earn points with God. It's part of why I mentioned that this morning, coming around the Lord's table, it's a command, it's good, but we don't do it to earn points with God to perhaps reach a higher level of spirituality. Paul teaches that this is an unlawful use of the law. The law, he says, is not laid down for the just. It's not laid down for believers. It's laid down for the lawless in order to expose their sin and to reveal their guilt and judgment before God in order to lead them to Christ. In Galatians 3.24 Paul teaches that the law is our schoolmaster. It's our guardian. We've been entrusted to the law as unbelievers and its job is to bring us to Jesus. But once we have faith in Christ, the law no, no longer functions in the same way for believers as it did previously. And so we see that the law has both a lawful and an unlawful purpose. And Paul condemns any unlawful use of the law as being another doctrine which deviates from the gospel. So then what is the right lawful use of the law? Paul says in verse eight that the law is good if you use it lawfully, if you use it properly the way it was intended. And so this has led to what the reformers, particularly John Calvin, declared to be the threefold use of the law. Its first function is to be a mirror. The first lawful use of the law is to reflect to us both the righteousness of God and our own sinfulness and shortcomings. As we look at the law, we meant to see the holiness of God and we need to see the sinfulness of ourselves. Augustine wrote, the law bids us as we try to fulfill its requirements and become wearied in our weakness under it to know how we should ask the help of grace. The law drives you and me to a knowledge of sin, our need for forgiveness, our, the, the danger of our condemnation under God and to repentance and faith in Christ. So that's the first lawful use of the law, to be a mirror. The second lawful use of the law is the civil law, uh, the civil use to, to restrain evil. The law cannot change the heart. You know that. And if you're a parent, you know no matter how much you lay down the law for your children, you do not change their hearts by that. You simply invoke in them a desire to rile up against the law. So the law never changes the heart, but it does inhibit lawlessness 
through its threats of judgment, especially when backed by a civil legal system that actually punishes people for proven offenses. And so it secures civil order and it protects the righteous and the vulnerable from those who are unjust. That's a good use of the law. And its third function is to guide the believer into the good works that God has planned for us. That's Ephesians 2.10. The Lord tells us as God's children what pleases their heavenly Father. Remember, the first use of the law is, is a mirror to reveal to us the character of God. Now that we are the children of God, as we look at the law, we understand the character of God, and it tells us what will please God, how we can live our lives in a way that pleases the Lord. And so that's why Jesus said, to his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey. Notice, first become Christians, then teach to obey. In other words, we don't obey to become Christians. We become Christians by faith in Jesus, and then we obey because that pleases the Lord. The Christian is free from the law as a system of salvation, but is under the law of Christ as a rule for our life. And so here we see how Paul handles this issue of false teaching in the church. He's established the authority of, of God's messengers, which comes from God itself, as recorded in Scripture. He then directly confronts the false teachers to stop their teaching, and he exposes their lack of understanding. And then he presents the correction to the false teachers by laying down the biblical truth, which should be taught and followed. Now what I've outlined is Paul's strategy, for the most part today, is completely ignored within the broad context of Christianity today. As we look at the landscape of Christianity today, we see a multitude of denominations, a whole host of differing views, and if we are honest, there's very little that Christians seem to agree on. How did this happen? Well, it happened because we have not learned from the Apostle Paul's letter to Timothy to God at all costs the truth of the gospel. The truth of the doctrines of the apostles and the prophets handed down to us as recorded in scripture. No, instead we are told today that doctrine divides. This is a particular problem within our Baptist union. Doctrine divides. You, you can't ask for a clear statement of faith because the minute it's clear, it divides. So let's go for something that's, that's fuzzy, that's broad. Let's leave interpretation up to each congregation to decide on their own. Because the greatest of all virtues today, we are told, is that of tolerance. Tolerance produces unity. And unity is the greatest expression of love. It all sounds so Christian-y. But it's not. It's not. Yes, unity leads to love, but unity can only be found in the clarity of the gospel, in the doctrines of our faith. If I need to be united to you outside of the truths of the scripture, it's a compromise, and it is not one of love. It will ultimately lead to destruction. So let me close today by showing what Paul's purpose was in confronting these false teachers, and that is ultimately to reveal the goal of the true message. We see this just briefly in verse five and 11. Verse five, the aim of our charge, in other words, the aim to silence these false teachers is love. 
that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. I want us to see that we truly show love for each other as elders, as parents, as Sunday school teachers, as youth leaders. We show love for those entrusted to us when we command those who are teaching false doctrine to stop. This reveals firstly our primary love for God. If we tell a false teacher to stop his nonsense, it shows first and foremost that we love God more than the approval of men. But secondly, it actually reveals to those under our care that we truly love them because we do not wish to see their souls becoming shipwrecked on the rocks of false teaching. False teaching leads to eternal death. And I think this is where we must own up and admit that often in the context of conservative evangelical Christianity, this correction of false teaching comes from a spirit of pride. We've got it all together here. We have all the truth. We know it all. And you guys have got it wrong. It comes from a spirit of pride. It comes from a, a spirit of, of wanting to win an argument. No, says Paul to Timothy, command them to be silent and to teach no more. Yes. Why? Because we love God and we love his truth and we love those whom God has entrusted to our care. And this desire for the purity of the church flows out of a heart which is pure. That's crucial. It flows out of a conscience which is clean before God and a sincere, a genuine faith in Jesus Christ. And the ultimate end of protecting the true message, he says in verse 11, is to reveal or to showcase to the world the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which we have been entrusted. Do you love God enough to place his truth as the ultimate truth under which everything else in your life is subjected? It's very easy to say yes to that. It's very hard to live that out. But I need you to think about it. Do you love God enough to place his truth as the ultimate truth under which everything else in your life is subjected? And then do you love each other enough to lovingly protect those whom God has entrusted to both your care and your influence? To show them graciously from a pure heart with a clear conscience when they are deviating from the truth of God's word? Or are you willing to watch them go astray simply to preserve the peace and to avoid conflict? Let's take heed of Paul's urging to Timothy today. Silence the false teachers in your home. That you can do today. Silence the false teachers in your home by guarding your eyes and your ears and your children from that which is false. Parents, do you know what your kids are watching on TV and YouTube? Do you know what they are being taught at school? Do you love God enough, young adults, to stop binge-watching Netflix shows which promote principles and values which are contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Older folk, are you prepared to switch off your favorite DSTV preacher 
Yes, who lives in Israel and reads the Bible in native Hebrew, but who is preaching another gospel. And then as we see others in the church, as we see others in our family of circle and friends going astray, let us with great motive of love and love for God, love for them with this pure heart, pure conscience, sincere faith, let's warn them. Warn them of their errors. Point them to the true message. Don't just say what you're watching is nonsense. Say to them, it's dangerous. Can I show you why it's dangerous? Come with me. Let's look at God's word together. Let's get help. Let's get to the truth so that we can discern the error because I love you and I love God and I'm concerned for your souls. So that we may be able to say with Paul to the Ephesians in Acts 20, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Let's pray together. Father, as we have considered this reality of false teaching in the context of the church, the deception of the evil one all around us in society and on the internet. Lord, the real issue here this morning is our heart's attitude towards you, our love for you as the, the God of all truth, the only holy God that we sung about earlier. Lord, if that is true, if we believe it, may you consume our own hearts with you and our love for your word and a desire to know your word inside out deeply so that the more we love you and your word, the more we will be able to discern and guard ourselves and those that you've entrusted to us against the errors of the evil one that are so pervasive in our society today. Lord, won't you guard our own hearts won't you guard us as a church? And won't you give us the boldness in love, love for you and love for one another to speak the truth in love graciously to those that we see going astray. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.